From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Carter Grzitza. And I'm Jason Wong. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're bringing you two stories from our archives. First up is the Terra Informa Christmas Classic, The Christmas Tree Showdown. With the holiday season upon us, it's important to think about the impacts some of our holiday practices can have on the environment. What's better for the environment, a real tree or a fake one? Then we hope to bring you a bit of insight into the state of our flying furry friends, bats. The Community Bat Program in Alberta aims to shed some light onto the challenges bats face today and erase some of the mysteries about the creatures. We're bat fans and we hope you will be too. Before we dive in, we have some environmental headlines. In Kenya this week, the United Nations environmental ministers signed an agreement to stop polluting the ocean with throwaway plastic. The agreement was made only in principle though, and scientists have criticized the ministers for not instituting any tangible targets or timelines. Despite the lack of direct action, the environmental ministers say the agreement does signal a start to aiming for zero plastic pollution and is an important first step. In Canadian environmental news, the peregrine falcon could be removed from Canada's threatened species list. Back in 1978, The birds were struggling so much that there was only one nest in southern Canada. Since then, the population has grown to about 600 individuals in southern Canada and 1,500 in the north. Their recovery is largely due to the banning of the toxic pesticide DDT in the 1970s. The Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada is now recommending that the peregrine falcon be delisted as a threatened species, although it will still be a species of special concern on the west coast. It's that time of year that many of us are on the lookout for a new Christmas tree to plant in our living rooms. We're usually familiar with two different options, springing for the real deal or going artificial. But what effects will your choice have on the environment? Each branch has its pros and cons, but when it comes to deciding which is naughty and nice, it isn't so cut and dry. Before sprucing up your den this holiday, you might want to hear some facts first. This is Hamdi Ashawi with an archive piece. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. Mistletoe home where you can see... For almost 30 years now, my family has used the same artificial Christmas tree to celebrate Christmas. And until recently, I hadn't really thought twice about it. I mean... 
I knew that there were real-life Christmas trees out there, and people who cut them down or buy them, but it never really occurred to me why we didn't. When I asked my parents why, they said that when they bought ours, there wasn't much room in the budget or apartment for authenticity, even though my mom prefers them. Apparently, her dad used to bring one home every year. And this got me wondering about other people. What makes them choose one tree over the other? So to find out, I hit downtown Edmonton a week before the big day to find out how some shoppers have dealt with this classic Christmas conundrum. Hi, what's your name? Renee. Hi, Renee. Do you have a Christmas tree at home? Um, yes, but I don't have it up yet. <laughs> what kind of tree do you have? Is it an artificial tree or a real tree? It's artificial. And why did you choose artificial? Um, it was my boyfriend's tree, but I would rather have a real tree. <laughs> oh, okay, so you kind of inherited the tree you have. Yes. And why would you prefer a real tree? It's more environmentally friendly. Really? How so? Um, well, you can replant the trees and also you waste a lot of material making those artificial trees, I believe. Something to think about. Thank you very much for your time, Renee. Hi, what's your name? Jessica. Jessica, do you have a Christmas tree at home? No. How come? Uh, I live in a tiny bachelorette suite and I go home for Christmas. Uh, have you ever had a Christmas tree? Yeah, growing up. What kind? Uh, a spruce or an evergreen. So it was a real tree? Yeah. And did you prefer the real tree over the artificial? No, I think it kind of smelled like cactus. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Nowadays, if you had the space or the time to go out and get a tree, which one would you choose? Um, probably a fake tree just because they're more eco-friendly and now they have like those special LED lights that twinkle. Really flashy, huh? Yeah. How do you think they're more eco-friendly? Because you're not constantly buying a new tree every year and chopping them down. Thanks for your time. No problem. What struck me most about these answers were the environmentally friendly claims on both sides of the fence. A real tree is a one-time deal, but unlike a fake, it's biodegradable, recyclable, and it produces oxygen while absorbing greenhouse gas. On the other hand, I've been enjoying my tree for more than 25 years, which means 25 trees are still alive. So then which tree is, well, greener? I was stumped, so I called Dr. Charles Barden for help. He's a professor of forestry and director of the Tuttle Research Center for Kansas State University. Be any kind of a pesticide or anything on the tree. Now you probably get asked this a lot close to Christmas time, but between real and artificial Christmas trees, which one's better for the environment? Sure, I would say from an environmental perspective, actually, the real tree is is better for the environment. How so? The artificial tree that uses. Uh, a lot of energy and petrochemicals and even lead in, in their production. And then the artificial tree doesn't, you know, last forever. It really looks good for about, you know, five or eight years. That needs to be discarded and uh, another one purchased. And which petrochemicals are you referring to specifically? Well, generally PVC, the polyvinyl chloride, is the uh, primary material that, uh, you know, makes the, the foliage, the, basically the plastic foliage of the, of the tree itself. And unlike fake trees, real ones are actually supposed to help guard against climate change, right? By sequestering or absorbing greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide? Exactly. During the tree's life, it um, you know, absorbs a lot of uh, carbon dioxide and puts it into the, the wood and roots of the tree. And then we 
we harvest that tree, the uh, the stump and all the root system is still there, and that slowly adds carbon uh, to the soil. So some of it gets broken down and back to the atmosphere, but uh, much of it uh, will be tied up in the soil. But when these trees are burned or they decay, they release that stored carbon right back into the atmosphere. So are they really better climate-wise than the alternative? Right. What it does is if you, you burn it or get it completely broken down, it does return the carbon back to the atmosphere, but it was the, the same carbon that it absorbed over the first you know, 10 years of its life. So we talk about trees being carbon neutral. They, uh, if you, you know, burn up the tree even for you know, heating your home, uh, it'll be carbon neutral in that the, you release the carbon that the tree just absorbed over its uh, lifetime. Uh, but we aren't taking uh, carbon, you know, fossil fuels out of the ground that's been tied up for millions of years and then kind of adding that to the net global budget of carbon. Now, I want to ask you about disposal because real trees don't necessarily have to be thrown out. They can actually be recycled. So how does that work? A lot of uh, municipalities around the country now will have a certain day when you can leave your trees by the uh, curbside and they will come through with a, with a separate collector for those and chip them up to use them basically for wood chip mulch in their uh, parks and areas. And uh, also they can be um, sunken into a, a pond or lake uh, to be used for fish habitat act like mini coral reefs with the uh, structure of the branches and needles on the trees will allow algae and plants to grow on them and small uh, uh, fish will be attracted to that and hiding in the branches and the bigger fish will come into the shade of the trees that are provided. That's kind of comforting actually. So does this mean that uh, the life of a real tree is pretty much finished after Christmas or is it possible to keep that tree alive and maybe even reuse it? Yes, that, that can work, um, uh, especially in areas where the ground, you know, will not be uh, frozen solid uh, after Christmas. But uh, yes, we call those living Christmas trees or bald and burlap or potted Christmas trees. And it does mean you, you know, can't really keep it in your house for three weeks or so because the tree will start to lose dormancy and think it's spring and start to grow. And then you put it outside, it'll, it'll go into shock and get damaged. But if you want to just keep the tree inside for about a week or so, you also may want to dig the uh, planting hole, you know, when you receive the tree, uh, and then cover it uh, with a with a burlap or or some sheets of cardboard so it doesn't fill in. And then you'll be ready to plant that tree, even if there is some frost in the ground, uh, when you're ready to take it down after Christmas. Okay. That yeah. Now I came well across a study on this very topic you know, published by Ellipsos, a consulting firm that specializes in sustainable development. In it, they examined the life cycles of real and artificial Christmas trees in Montreal. According to their results, quote, when compared on an annual basis, the artificial tree, which has a lifespan of six years, has three times more impact on climate change and resource depletion than the natural tree, unquote. This is due almost entirely to carbon emissions from the production process of those bristly PVC plastic trees. But there's a twist. If an artificial tree is kept for more than 20 years, the table starts to turn. After 20 years, the fuel it takes to truck real trees home begins to tip the scales to the other side, because the carbon emissions from producing and shipping in artificial trees are a one-time thing. I asked Dr. Barden what he thought of this. The thing that makes me nervous about that is the, that PVC foliage, the plastic foliage, will start to kind of get brittle and break up. And uh, if they use lead to stabilize that, which a lot of the Chinese manufacturers do, uh, you basically be polluting your indoor ear with, with powdered lead. Uh, and so that doesn't sound like a, a good deal to me. It's always 
more efficient to ship a thousand of something than to go get one and bring it back. But when you look at the um, family memories you're making by visiting a local Christmas tree farm and and uh, providing some money to the local economy and the good memories of the kids picking out the tree and doing that sort of family activity besides just going to the store and, and buying one, I, you know, there's something more important than, than fuel use in this world, I think. That was Hamdi Ashawi's Christmas Tree Showdown from the Terranformic Archives. Last spring, Terra Informers, Lauren, Charlie, and Amanda went to an event called Living with Bats. That was being held at the Wild Birds Unlimited in Edmonton. Aaron Lowe, the Edmonton Regional Coordinator of the Alberta Community Bat Program, gave a presentation on general bat topics and how to attract bats to our yard. The team caught up with Erin after her presentation to ask her about the challenges facing bats today. Um, I'm the Edmonton Regional Coordinator of the Alberta Community Bat Program. And you're speaking today about bats. <laughs> how, how to include them, uh, include them if you want to attract them to, to your area, or kind of what to do if you um, think that you need to exclude them from a house, or kind of just living with bats and kind of appreciating bats as well. Uh, so as I was saying with data collection, so we're moving into the second year, um, the summer of a citizen science-based project. So we're encouraging um, landowners who have roofs on their properties to submit um, the locations of, of bat roofs. So essentially what we're trying to do is get an idea of what species are using these roosts and then just some of the characteristics. So whether it's in an attic or whether it's in a barn or whether it's a natural roost, a bat house, bat condo, what, whatever the situation might be, then we can really tie it all together and kind of figure out which bats are using um, which areas and kind of what, what they're looking for. Um, the big thing with bats is they're pretty difficult to identify, so that's where we're asking for a guano sample. So it's it's a relatively um, cost-effective way that we can get a fairly reliable um, identification of the bat, as well as um, counts as well, if that's something that, that you can do, is just to get an idea of how big these houses are. Um, so just kind of generally speaking, um, lots of bats, huge amount of bats. So they actually make up a 20% of all mammals, um, over 1,200 species. And we're finding out more like species all the time with these netting projects. Again, it's birds are a little bit easier to study in, in the sense that they're not kind of flying around in the middle of the night and not at times when people are generally kind of just wandering around looking for birds. So it's it's a very difficult group to study, and that's kind of probably led to uh, a lot being unknown about bats. Um, every continent except for Antarctica as well. So they're they're really quite everywhere. Generally speaking, again, um, they can be divided into megabats or microbats. 
So megabats are your fruit eaters or nectar um, drinkers, and then your microbats are going to be the ones that are using echolocation, uh, so eating the insects, as well as like amphibians and um, rodents and stuff. They, they have some really unique, really unique diets. Um, in terms of kind of convincing why bats are awesome, it's they can eat a ton of mosquitoes. So if you think of how long they can live for and how big these colonies can get, it's just it's an insane amount. It's like tons and tons of mosquitoes over the course of the colony's kind of lifetime, which is just awesome. So that eats a thousand mosquitoes an hour. Is that the colony or per bat? That's per bat. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. No, it's just it's just unreal. Um, threats to bats. So habitat degradation is a big one. So again, it's as I had mentioned before, it's the roots that they're choosing often aren't like the nice, young, healthy-looking trees. They're ones that they can get into, or ones with like heart rot or frost cracks, um, cavities, and such. So it's they're going to be taken down due to the human um, safety concern. And then also just um, like with forestry and different developments as well, we're taking out quite a bit of forest and. They do require older, mature forests. I don't know, have, have you heard much about wind turbines and bats? Not too, too much? Um, so something new that's kind of been popping up, it's, so there's fatality associated with the bats physically striking the blades, but the biggest thing is actually something called barotrauma. So it's essentially bats are just getting too close to the turbines. They're not detecting them for um, a few different supposed reasons, but and essentially just the pressure difference between what the turbines kind of producing and between their lungs is just causing their lungs um, to explode essentially. <coughs> so they're just dropping and out of the air, which is just very, very horrible and it's, we're thinking um, birds and bats are a little bit different just in kind of the design of their lungs, so these are much more pliable and it's again kind of a flight ad adaptation um, as a mammal that can fly. This is um, definitely more of a concern out east like to the point that they're actually having to shut down um, like entire wind turbine facilities because they're just the numbers are too high so there's a lot of talk right now um, especially I think with pushes to get more on green energy um, to figure out how we can address this because it's the numbers are getting a little bit too high and you know even experts are expecting over the next I think 50 years like 90% declines and it's especially in the hoary pat so it's We've got wind, like white nose syndrome for our little browns and owls, and we have like a 90% population decline in hoary bats over the next few years because of wind turbines. Yeah. Would it work at all to have any kind of like a signal generator that would? <laughs> yeah, it's it's something that we've um, we've you know it's something that I've been reading about and something that people are are talking about. So ultrasonic whistles is kind of, but problem is is like. <laughs> We don't understand enough what attracts or like repels bats. There's not enough knowledge if it's actually going to attract them or like. Which you wouldn't want to have happen. No, that that would probably be not not the option to go with. Um, a big thing is shutting them down. Um, most of these fatalities happen during like a three-week period. So in Alberta, at least, the spring migration doesn't seem to be as bad as the fall migration. And it's not just the juveniles. Like we were finding an equal amount of kind of adults and juveniles. So for whatever reason. Fall migration seems to kill a lot more bats, so kind of just trying to find mitigations to minimize fatalities. So the white nose syndrome I'll talk a little bit more about. Um, I think that this one's been in the news quite a bit, especially with it popping up in Washington last year, Washington State last year. Um, so just kind of the basics of it in case you haven't heard about it. So this is affecting our hibernating bats. Um, aptly named again, not the most original naming group, white nose, because it's a white fungus predominantly on their noses. 
<clears throat> it was first detected in 2006 in New York. Um, today, I mean, it's like it's killed over six million bats, and it's wiping out entire hibernating colonies, like thousands and thousands at, at one go. You just walk in, and, and there's just carcasses everywhere, and it's spreading really fast. <coughs> so how it kills, it's it's not necessarily um, the fungus itself that it that kills, but it's basically just it wakes them up too much over the course of the winter. So they only have a set amount of fat reserves. So if they um, having to wake up constantly to be grooming this fungus off that is just like, it's growing into them. So it's also causing tissue damage, so that's again, um, it's going to start growing into their wings, and so that's when they're, they're not able to fly, um, as well as forcing them out in the winters. So different signs, this is more often not if you're actually kind of near a hibernacular, you're gonna see them flying during the day in the winter. Um, you're also gonna see the white fungus on the nose, wings, ears, or tail. This is, they're gonna groom it off as soon as they come out. Um, so it's not really something if you find a bat, you should be seeing it necessarily. Um, but this is again where we can shine like a UV light on it and then uh, you can see the damage on the wings. So current research, um, the biggest thing as I mentioned, uh, it's probably what the caving groups are doing, just trying to get an idea of where these hibernacula are. Um, public outreach and awareness, you know, just kind of getting people to like bats and promote bats and trying to help them as much as we can during the summer so they're in better shape for, for the winter. A lot of funding and stuff from the government and different organizations in terms of research. The thing with cures is like, it's it's a good idea and obviously its attention is, is needed there. But I mean, even if we find a cure for it, it's like how are we supposed to apply that? It's not like we can just code a cave in it. It's there's a lot of different kind of um, interactions in the cave that we can't just apply like antifungal to the entire cave and hope for the best. It's who knows like what else you'd be wiping out or, or changing within it. So it's it's a tough one. It's it's a really tough one. So. The big thing is kind of just, at this point, raising awareness, finding out where the hibernacula are. And then for the caving community as well, if, if you are into that, it's just making sure kind of like gears decontaminated, or if you've been in white nose areas in caves, it's just like using entirely different gear. You don't want to start start being the reason to introduce a, a fungus to, to Alberta. What people have thought is like a truck probably brought it over or something, so again, bats like being in blinds, so again with like campers and stuff, it's a big thing if, if you do have a camper van and stuff, it's or umbrellas, like close them during the night so you know that they're not getting in there. Um, open them up, like the uh, blinds before you leave, and then you just know that you're not bringing them across. On that happy note. <laughs> I want to thank Erin for coming out today on such a blustery day to <laughs> yeah, help thanks. us understand a little bit more about, about that. Um, so uh, feel free to... Uh, can you tell us about your experience working with wind turbines and bats? Yeah, so I, I was um, working for an environmental consulting company, so it was one of the projects that we were involved with. And uh, essentially, with the government has um, like pre and post construction um, guidelines that are required. So anytime that a new facility goes up, we need to um, yeah do the do the pre and post construction. So we were looking after the post construction. So um, we were walking around looking for bat and bird carcasses, and then. Um, they had a certain kind of threshold that they had to, or they couldn't exceed, otherwise um, further mitigation and such as like shutting down the turbines at night or um, kind of further further actions if, if that was required as well. But um, bats are definitely seem to be more affected in, in eastern Canada with wind turbines, not to say it, it is a minimal risk here, um, but it's the, the numbers are, are a lot higher in, in eastern Canada than what we're seeing here, luckily, I guess in some ways. <laughs> but is that just because there's like more... Winter turbines in the east, or I don't know. Like um, I think 
Maybe, but I mean, even then, the the proportion of like bats that we're finding dead underneath are a lot higher, and it's um like even some of the larger facilities are are still not finding the numbers that um, Eastern Canada, so like the ones in Ontario, are finding for some reason. So. Hmm. I don't mysterious. know. Mysterious. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah. Bats are kind of just, yeah, mysterious on so many levels. Yeah. <laughs> I've, like, seen these wind turbines. I don't think they're, like, being used or anything, but they're just, like, those, like, they're just cylinders, I guess, that kind of move. Do you think, like, those would be any better? I think so, because, okay. I mean, it's, um, the, so the wind turbines, I mean, these, these are massive, like, blades and stuff, so I imagine the pressure differences that it's causing are, are fairly extensive mm-hmm. so i mean if you have something that's circular and like i've i haven't looked into this a ton like i've heard it and read into it a little bit but yeah. i imagine it's just going to be creating a much smaller so i mean i think it's still going to affect them to a degree but it's just it's going to minimize that that area that's causing that that pressure pressure difference so i, I do think they're hopefully hopefully one day it's yeah. it'll yeah. get there can you tell us why the hoary bat is your favorite bat because <laughs> <laughs> it's adorable um i don't know it's i I honestly think it's just because it's the prettiest, and I've now just attached to that, and now it's just, I think it's awesome in every way. I think the migratory species are, are pretty cool. Yeah, they're just, they're, they're cute, and they're attractive, and I kind of just love them. <laughs> so. And if someone's interested in getting into bats, uh, what would you recommend to them? Um, I would say volunteering is, is huge, kind of just going out with people, um, whether it's grad students or just people that are doing it. So if you can find any sort of connection to go out with people, that's kind of your best bet. But a lot of it is um, we're being driven to just more of acoustics rather than actual handling, which handling was what got me into it. Um, kind of like talk, talk to us about it. I mean, certainly you can email me, find out, find out about the program as well and find out different ways to get involved. That was our Terror Informers, Charlie Blay, Lauren Carter, and Amanda Rooney, speaking with Aaron Lau from the Alberta Community Bat Program. If you want to hear even more stories like that, Check out our website at terrainforma.ca, and while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. Speaking of the upcoming year, do you have New Year's resolutions to tell stories about multifaceted environmental topics and or be on the radio? If you answered yes to either of those things, you should consider joining our team. If you didn't answer yes to either of those things, you might still want to consider joining our team. For more info on that, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca. And that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terrainforma is a production of CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Ashley Coaches, Amanda Rooney, Sophia Osborne, Sydney Carbonic, and Shelley Shudlan. We've been your hosts, Jason Wong and Carter Rizitza. Check you next week.
that will take some editing, but that's yeah. okay. 